0: Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. So welcome everyone to this special edition of our Behavioral Science Uncovered podcast. Today we are very happy to have Kitty Milkman, professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good initiative. We're going to talk about some of the research that has led to the production of your recent book, How to Change, with an emphasis on the research journey um, more than the findings, per se. So, Katie, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So before we delve into the book, I need to ask you, why this book and why this book now?
1: Well, the now is a funny part of that question, because of course, when you decide to write a book, it's many years before the moment it comes out. So I didn't plan for a pandemic and I didn't plan for this book to come out in the middle of one, but actually oddly, I think the timing was pretty good in terms of the goals of the book, which were to provide people with useful tools based in science that could help them achieve more of their goals when it comes to changing behavior. The reason I wrote it was really that throughout my career, I've been studying the science of behavior change. I was motivated by evidence that really blew my mind when I first saw it of just how many premature deaths could be prevented if we better understood how to help people achieve their goals when it comes to healthy eating and physical activity and preventative medicine quitting smoking, making good decisions about alcohol consumption, vehicle safety. I just couldn't believe when I learned that 40% of premature deaths are due to those causes. That really got me excited about focusing most of my research attention on how we could develop scientific ways to tackle those problems. And of course, Once I started thinking about the importance of this to health, it was obvious that even if I've never seen the same graph, these kinds of tools would be useful to helping people make better financial decisions and better educational decisions and similarly improving outcomes. So as soon as I got fixated on that research focus, it it was also natural to think eventually I wanted to find a way to translate the findings from this science for a large audience so that it wouldn't just bounce around in the academy and be cited by a few people, you know, a few hundred, if you have a big hit, (laughs) but rather actually help people change their lives. So I think I always knew once I got fixated on this research topic, that someday I'd want to write a book. And I think it was roughly 2018 when I felt, okay, I've been at this for more than a decade. I actually feel like between the things I've learned from brilliant scientists in our community and some of the things I've learned myself, I have enough to say that it really could be helpful. So it was time to sit down and write. And then the now part like the, the coming out in the pandemic, as I said, you know, in 2018, when I decided to do this, I had no idea there would be a global pandemic. And I certainly didn't plan for, to release a book in the middle of one. On the other hand, the moment when this book came out, which was last May, I think a lot of people were at an inflection point uh, around the world, especially I should, you know, we're very privileged in the United States that we had at that point, adequate access to vaccines. And I think you know, man, many in Europe were in the same position. I realized that In other parts of the world, the moment wasn't as auspicious for feeling optimistic and ready to make changes, but it was a moment when I think people... In the United States, because they had access to vaccines, because things were sort of looking up, obviously things have changed a bit since, but there was a lot of optimism and a lot of people were thinking, okay, what's next? This has been a huge disruption to life. Disruption is not even obviously an adequate word to describe how awful it has been, you know, so many losses of so many different kinds, but there was a sense of a new beginning. And I think the book came out at a good time to help people think about how science could support their new goals hmm
0: So as you describe it, the mission seems mainly sort of outward oriented. You're thinking about, you know, your many years of experience as a behavioral scientist and thinking about how you can convey those actionable insights, right? Uh, to I think that's right. Change, right? I would like to ask you whether there is not also a more inward oriented part of the mission of reflecting, maybe taking a step back on all the many years of you doing behavioral science. And, and I was wondering how has you know, writing and, and the production of this book improved your understanding of who you are as a behavioral scientist and where you want to be next?
1: Yeah, it's funny. That really wasn't the motive at all. The motive was truly outward. Like, how can I be of service? I hope this work has can help other people. And I think this is a way to translate it for that audience. But of course, you're absolutely right that in doing that, unexpected, frankly, which is sort of naive. Like how could I have not appreciated that there would be um, value to me in doing this too? Especially, you know, I've I've been involved in research showing that when you give advice to others, it helps you. I should have recognized that that would be part of the production process and one of the outcomes, but it wasn't my focus. And it's been this Amazing, unexpected benefit of writing the book that it gave me more of a bird's eye view on the work I had done over the course of my career and how it fit into a larger conversation. It helped me actually discover some scientific findings that I wouldn't have focused on if it hadn't been for the synthesis project. And it has helped me think big picture about my own career and what are the gaps in knowledge that I want to fill next. So you know, I wouldn't recommend that anyone write a book because they have those goals. I think they're more efficient. You know, you can write a, an academic summary piece. It takes less time and energy, and you can probably achieve some of those goals. But it was an ancillary benefit that I didn't anticipate and that I'm excited about. It's renewed my enthusiasm and curiosity about some things that I probably wouldn't have found my way to otherwise.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, the stock taking type of, of, of exercise that this entails, I think is really important. How long did it take you to produce the book? So, I mean, this is a really different type of exercise. We're really used to, you know, writing academic papers. And I'm guessing that just writing for a popular audience is not an easy exercise. So I was wondering whether that was difficult for you and and how long did it take you to cover the ground that you aimed to to, to cover?
1: First, yes, it was incredibly difficult one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Rewarding, but difficult and also odd because, you know, when you train yourself to write a scientific article, right, if you think back to the first time you did that, that's hard, right? It's like there's like a formula and you have to learn this whole new formula for writing. It's not like writing a term paper or an essay of any other kind. And it's the same for writing a book. There are things you have to learn about how to tell a story, how to keep a reader engaged from one thought to the next, how how to construct a chapter, how the chapters flow together to form a whole that makes sense, how to write a beginning and an end. Those things were so hard, at, at least with writing an academic paper, you're like, well, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to turn them out. And I guess for some people who are writing their first book or journalists who plans to have a career in this, you see that for me, one thing that was, odd, you know, I don't plan to write a book here. I, I'm an academic science comes first. It is odd that I accumulated this new, it was so hard, so much work to accumulate sort of a new skill. And then I'll mostly put it on a shelf, (laughs) but it was really hard. I am so grateful for the many people who helped. I started the project in the summer of 2018, as I think I mentioned, and I didn't have a complete draft of the book until spring of 2020. So roughly two years and it wasn't finalized until fall of 2020. So more than two years. And of course there were bursty periods of that and periods when it was like sitting on someone else's desk. And it's not like I worked on it all day, every day. And for much of the time, in fact, it was a one day a week project because four days a week, I was focused on research and teaching. I took a sabbatical that helped and allowed me to do more like three or four days a week of intense work over a period of several months when it was crunch time and, and summers are great writing time for academics. I could do more in the Summers too, but it's a lot more work. Just like everything, the planning fallacy. I I had no idea what I was getting into. And again, the, you know, I benefited so much from learning from experts. I had incredible editor at Penguin Portfolio, and I had some incredible helpers on the side. To a, a book assistant who had a master's in journalism, who I hired to do everything from like chasing stories to finding endnotes. But she was the first reader on everything I wrote and gave amazing feedback and various other journalists who I'd be like, Ooh, can I, can I hire you to help me with this part of this chapter? That's not gelling. And so anyway, I benefited from so many people and I'm grateful for that. I could never have done it without their expertise. It's, it's just like a paper, right? It's a journey. The only weird thing about a book is their names aren't all in the front, right? If this had been a journal article, there'd be so many names on it because of all the people who made important contributions and helped me make it better. But instead there's just a really long acknowledgement section. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, awesome. So let's now go over some of the ideas that you cover in the book. So you, you start a journey of this book with a discussion of how to initiate behavior change, which makes sense. So in the first chapter on getting started, you talk about the importance for behavior change of fresh starts, right? These temporal landmarks that allow people to start with a blank slate. And You mentioned that this research has attracted a lot of media attention, particularly around New Year's Day. And you mentioned that interviewers often bring up this this question that's a bit cynical, uh, but you also uh, qualify as fair. And why should we bother with New Year's uh, resolutions? Because so many fail. And I really like the answers that you provide to this. the, The first one being, well, even though many fail, some of them succeed. So what is the benchmark that we're actually testing this against, evaluating this against? So framing matters. And... You also mentioned that, well, you need to be in the game first, right, to even have a chance to win. And that really struck a chord with me because that was one of the first things that my PhD supervisor would constantly remind me of, which is, look, if you don't try, you cannot win, right? So that actually really seems important. But I would like to ask you a more conceptual question, which pertains to how our own sense of identity interacts with the behavioral change strategies that we adopt. So on the one hand, if I think about the fresh start effect, this seems to suggest that I need to believe in a new me. I need to believe in the fact that you know, everything is in the past. What matters you know, is now, today and onwards. And so that creates a sort of rupture breakpoint in how we see ourselves. But at the same time, if you want to sustain change, it seems that we need to believe that the new me will still be around tomorrow, so that we keep investing in it. And so it seems that actually here, we will want to emphasize the connectedness the sense of connection that we have with our past selves so that we keep investing in it. And so how do you see this tension between the two? Uh, Because that seems that we might need to have different visions of who we are uh, to initiate and to sustain behavior change.
1: I completely agree with that, that that there's sort of a funny feature of the fresh start effect, which is that we want this rupture from the past so we can say oh yeah the old me who failed to quit smoking that old me who didn't get an A in this class last semester like there that's the old me the new me is going to be different so that gives us this motivation to pursue new goals but then if we constantly see ruptures right if we're like oh you know life is full of potholes and i'm constantly a new person and we anticipate that in the future We won't have the motive to do all the things that are in our long-term best interest. And I think the best research on that second point, I think of work by Hal Hirschfeld on how important it is to identify with your future self and not see ruptures and to see a connectedness if you want people to do things like save more for retirement, that the more we can connect to our future selves, the more we will invest in goal-directed actions. I think these things are actually, the theory to me is very cohesive in that to get started, you want a rupture. And to keep going, you want to see a continuity. The problem then with fresh starts is that when things are going well, they are disruptive. And this is actually my amazing former student, Heng Chen Dai, who's a professor now at UCLA. This is what she focused on in her dissertation work. You know, was something we'd talked about a lot when we started studying the fresh start effect is it's good when you need a jolt to begin again. It's gotta be bad when you're on a roll and the last thing you need is a jolt. And she's proven this in her work. So then of course the challenge becomes like, well, (laughs) how do you, how do you have it both ways and how can you smooth over the disruptions when things are going well and accentuate them when things are going poorly. And I think that's sort of, that's when the choice architect becomes valuable is to try to create disruptions for people who are struggling and create continuity for people who are succeeding. And you can try to do it in your own life as well, I think. But in particular, the manager, the teacher, the coach has an opportunity to try to create those those rupture points. Okay. We're going to, you know, that game's in the past. Let's start fresh. Let's start tracking from here on versus you're doing so well. Look at how well you've performed. Look at the tally, look at the performance. We're going to keep this going, right? Those, it's just a different language and a different approach when you see someone struggling versus succeeding. And I think good coaches and teachers sort of know this intuitively, but if we could codify it and even be more intentional about doing this, I think we might be able to help people Achieve even more.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many interesting ideas here. So in chapter three, you talk about one potentially powerful tool to keep our pro- procrastination tendencies at bay: commitment devices. Uh, we've been, uh, both done work on this. So the idea is quite simple. You you can choose to deliberately impose constraints on yourself in order to achieve certain goals. So if you think about setting deadlines or even signing a public pledge, and you mentioned that despite some evidence that it can help, commitment devices often fail to attract demand, right? So de facto, this limits their ability to generate any impact. And so how do you understand this failure? And do you think that this is a self-control strategy that no, we've studied quite a lot now and maybe it's time to move on and we should study something else. Or do you feel like there is still a lot of things that we don't understand that we need to to better investigate?
1: First of all, I want want to know what you think. (laughs) So I'd love, I'm going to like turn this on you and ask you to answer that question because I'm really curious. I feel like, let me give you a second. So since you didn't anticipate being put on the hotspot, I'll like give a weak answer and attempt to give you something, but I really would like to hear what you think. I guess my weak answer or my, my strong view, but it's, it's a weak answer is I'm not, I am definitely not ready to give up on the commitment devices. I they're so powerful, so useful, probably the most useful tool, maybe, maybe defaults are in their league, but of all the things that I have looked at and, and say st- like their effects are so robust and on big problems, right. I almost never in the book touch on things like addiction. Cause I, I feel like our science normally can't be helpful there. It's such a different category. And yet, Commitment devices have proven useful in cases of addiction, right? We can use commitment devices to help people quit smoking. That's an amazing achievement. And so I'm very bullish on their potential, which makes me think it's worth investing more time and energy and understanding how could we increase demand? How could we create sophistication? But so I don't, I'm not ready to give up on them at all. I think we should study them more, but probably when we study them, if I had my druthers, we'd be focused on how to create more sophistication and increase demand, as opposed to just continuing to demonstrate their efficacy or the subpopulations that demand them. Now I want to know what you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: No, yeah. So I actually think that there is very little we actually understand in terms of the de- determinants of take-up. I mean, if you look at studies, first, actually, there is very little effort that has been made to compare, right, how various features of the design of commitment contracts might actually generate various levels of take-up. And one thing that I think is really important that we haven't studied much is substitution effects. So it could be you go, I sell you a commitment contract, but you're already setting goals in your head and that's an internal commitment device. It could be that uh, I can offer you to remove certain options on the platform so that you don't see them, but then you already have developed attentional strategies so that the objects are not even in your mind anymore. So why actually pay for a commitment in the first place? So I think there's this, that I think we need to understand much better And I also think that there are important dynamic effects that I think we need to understand as well. So when you think about the exercise of self-control, what I think is really interesting with commitment devices is that maybe they can prevent you from learning important things. So now you basically do do not put yourself in the situation. And that means that you maybe miss some opportunities to develop, to exercise your own self-control in the absence of any restrictions. And so, once the commitment device is removed, that might actually backfire. So I think there are—I mean—that do- those are just a few examples of things that I believe we should explore more systematically. Maybe in a mega study, uh, we're going to talk about this in uh, towards the end. But um, but it seems to me that. You know, even basic things like understanding what are people's beliefs about the returns to the commitment device. Maybe this thing is actually not useful. That might also be, uh, that might also matter. So I agree. What I think is interesting, what you said is I also have this intuition, but maybe because we also use commitment devices in our own life, but maybe we also a select sample of people who actually do that. But I have this intuition that, yeah, this is something that uh, helps me a lot in my own life. And so there should be a way of better designing them to encourage tickets.
1: Good. Okay. I'm glad you're not ready to quit on them either. So it sounds like we have consensus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> More research is needed. Let's exactly. not abandon them.
0: <laughs> Let's not quit. Yeah. So we just discussed a strategy that hasn't really realized its full potential, it seems. In the book, you mentioned other strategies that you tested, which in your context of study seemed like a really good idea at first sight, but yielded he unintended effects. So let let me mention two such studies. I really found this quite refreshing, actually, that you mentioned, you know, what you expected, what you observed, uh, how this might actually have differed from your own expectations and the the, the expectation of of the audience. So in one study, you aim to test whether incentivizing exercise routines, so rewarding people for working out at fixed times, would perform better than flexible incentives. So when you can just, uh, you know, receive these incentives for working out at, at convenient times for yourself. And contrary to your prediction that routine incentives would perform better, you found the opposite. So why the results? And I would love to hear more about sort of the intuition for for the results. Once you explain them, they might seem obvious. And I think there is a danger here. I think as scientists, but also policymakers, anyone who reads this, that hindsight bias, oh, yes, of course, it's obvious. But really emphasize the fact that, you know, you went to many audiences, you presented this paper many times, and every time, uh, well, this defied people's predictions. So what I'm wondering about is whether you're thinking about measuring those prior expectations more systematically in your research. I mean, you're guessing you're excited to think about this and, and doing this, is it seems that this hindsight bias is quite tricky to handle. And, and in, there were many good reasons in the first place why this could have had a powerful effect.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that drives me the most crazy about behavioral science is that you can always rationalize something as obvious after the fact. So I actually have started investing more time and energy in getting people to make predictions about what will work. I'm presenting that alongside actual results. So one example, we just, my team just had a paper come out in Nature about you're just mentioning exercise. Actually, one of the first projects we did when Angela Duckworth and I co founded this Behavior Change for Good initiative, which is a big group of scientists. It's sort of our collaborators and then their collaborator. Anyway, it's ballooned in a funny way, but it started from a grant proposal. And we decided we would test ideas, not just a single hypothesis, but say dozens side by side. And we did this big test of dozens of different ways to encourage people to exercise at the gym over a four week period. And people use different techniques from offering commitment devices, which we've just been talking about to conveying social norms. It, it was a really wide range of ideas. And we asked both experts and non-experts to predict which of these things are going to be most effective. And in the end, we found zero correlation in performance of different interventions and the predictions people made about their success. And I think that actually ended up being an important part of this paper that we just published was showing how even experts do not understand well enough yet to predict accurately the performance of behavioral science interventions. So I think that paper would have been less exciting to people if we hadn't had that component. I think the project you just described where we have the surprising to us and to experts finding regarding whether it's better to train habits in a consistent or make sort of less consistent way. Uh, if you, again, hindsight bias makes things look obvious. And I think we should spend more time demonstrating what expectations are and then how findings defy them so that we won't become complacent about the need to collect evidence. I think that's one of the key challenges I face when I teach. I suspect you face it too, or even work with organizations. Often you tell them an idea you're excited about, right? You tell an organization an idea you're excited about and they say, well, we don't need to test it. We just want to implement it. That sounds like a great policy. Or you teach your students about a topic and they're like, oh, well, this will work. And in reality, context matters. There are often subtle moderators. We don't appreciate testing is so critical. I mean, If there's nothing else we've learned from behavioral science, it's that a simple model of human nature is wrong often. And so that means testing and empiricism are critical to getting things right. So yes, I think breaking priors by demonstrating predictions alongside outcomes is really important. Otherwise, I think we run the risk of just sort of assuming knowledge is obvious that truly isn't.
0: Yeah, and that really uh, invites humility. I mean, when you you see all these experts, right? We all think that we have accumulated knowledge, and it's not so so straightforward. There is another study that I found really interesting that you 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 mentioned in the book, where you found that providing information about peer behavior had a um, negative impact on retirement savings decisions. So in other words, your aim was to encourage savings using an intervention on social comparisons, and it seemed to have backfired. And you formed one conjecture for why this might have happened. But you also mentioned you're not entirely sure about what the conjecture is. I found actually this is really, really interesting, because how many times are we actually sure about why things fail in the first place? And so if you could go back in time, what would you have done differently to better understand what went wrong in the first place?
1: Mm. Okay. So first, let me uh, describe this study. And this is, I should say, this is work that I got to do with an amazing team of collaborators, John Bashir's of Harvard, David Labson of Harvard, James Choi of Yale, and Bridget Medrian of Brigham Young. And what we did is we conveyed to people who were not yet saving for retirement that the majority of their peers were saving and encouraged them to sign up to save too. It was a little more complicated than that. We actually randomly assigned people to both either see information about their peers saving or not, and to either see information about peers in their five-year or 10-year age group. And this was a really clever design decision that I I don't, it was not my idea. <laughs> John and I were arguing the other day. Actually, I was like, John, wasn't this your brilliant idea? It's like, no, I think it was, uh, you know, the broader team. I was like, well, I wasn't the one who came up with it. Let's just say that. So by signing people to different peer comparison conditions, right? Some people see a five-year age bucket, others a 10. We induced random variation, in the amount of money you learn your peers, sorry, the amount of your peers who you learn are saving for retirement. So that allowed us to study two things. One, does finding out the majority of your peers are saving increase your savings? And two, when the number you see of your peers who are saving increases, does that increase your savings? And of course, we expected the answer to be yes to both of those questions. One, pure norm, you know, finding out everyone else is doing it should increase your savings. Two, finding out more people are doing it should increase your savings more. And it- what we found was no, <laughs> in both cases, actually finding out your peers were statement. And I should say, this is not an, an important subset of the population. So this was for people who hadn't already made an active decision about retirement savings, who were zooming in on to see these sort of perverse effects. Most people in this firm had already been, or many people had been automatically enrolled unless they opted out, but a, a portion because of union rules hadn't been. And that's where we saw this perverse effect for people. For other folks who had made an active decision, things didn't look quite the same. Anyway, it was really interesting and surprising to us that it backfired in this large group to show them peer norms information, and that a higher number led them to save less. And I should also say the explanation I offer in the book and that we offer in our paper, which is backed by some you know post hoc empirical analyses but very imperfect, is that. It was actually discouraging to people to feel so far behind. And that some of the evidence we muster for this is that lower earners showed a bigger backfire effect. How would we have better understood? what really was going on. And if if our hypothesis is right, other than what we did, you know, what we're normally stuck with when we get a funny finding is like, oh gosh, what data do we have? What can we dig into? Which is exactly what we did. We're like, well, we know higher and lower earners. And maybe the theory that it's a discouragement effect should be stronger among lower earners. They would feel even more discouraged. And so we find some evidence of that, but I mean, survey data would have been fantastic to gather. Of course, if we could have actually asked people, it would have been nice to understand their thought processes through just asking some simple questions about their beliefs and how this updated their beliefs about both what was normal and what was feasible for them and whether they could catch up where they Um, feeling discouraged or encouraged about their capacity to save. So I think survey data would have been great, but I think we also could have designed the experiment if we had had any inkling, this would happen to include some extra conditions that would try to dampen the discouragement effects, right. By saying something about, you know, it would only take X months for you to catch up or by saying something like people who are earning the amount you're earning, are saving too, so that you wouldn't feel like, well, they must be the higher income earners in the firm. And I could never, I could never do this. And I'm so hopelessly behind. Let me just throw up my hands. So I think we could have deliberately manipulated something that would hopefully have given insight into the mechanism in the experiment with more experimental conditions, had we known what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the kind of follow-up work that I think would be really valuable. And we have not done that follow-up work, but you know, I hope it will happen. Or maybe, maybe we will be the ones to do it eventually um, when we find another organization willing to let us, let with us. One of the challenges is when you find a negative effect, exactly. partners don't come lining up and say like, well, let's re- replicate this <laughs> negative effect, uh, and see what's going on. Cause of course. That would be unethical so that that is always a challenge that may mean that lab research is needed as a way to try to tease these kinds of things apart but of course the lab is a really different environment than making a real financial decision like this and can be a hard place to tease apart so it's challenging but anyway hopefully those answers are somewhat helpful yeah
0: well that's um, I mean so you really emphasize the you know the, the the challenges I mean obviously you're interacting with partners and sometimes there is a, a risk that actually this is not going to pan out uh, you might actually even find opposite effects to what you intended. So each research project really involves an element of risk that maybe sometimes we fail to appreciate. So I would like to ask how how you decide actually what projects you undertake. As researchers, we we face a trade-off between exploitation of an existing idea that we know at least has proven to work in in other environments, and exploration of new territories. So how do you think about this trade-off between capitalizing on an existing idea and and just exploring new questions where you know that there is a higher chance potentially of failure?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I don't think super explicitly about that trade-off, I have to admit in my decision making about new projects. One thing that drives project selection for me a lot at this point is student collaborators and what they're excited about. I I love mentoring students. I have a wonderful set of current and past doctoral students and their interests often drive project selection. You know, I have to think it's exciting too, but but it's often not guided by what I am itching to learn as much as something that they're itching to learn. And then, you know, I have some criteria, like, do I think this would make a novel contribution, both theoretically and empirically? Hopefully that's the sweet spot, but at least empirically, I will admit I'm much more motivated to make empirical contributions than theoretical ones. I think historically, in part, because I think that's my relative advantage. I feel like I'm a stronger empiricist than theoretician, but if there's both, then that's, that's really exciting. And, you know, is it practical to carry out the work? I like doing work that I feel like can be tested in the field. Mm -hmm. So You're an economist, so you have the same priors, but I'm some weird in-between species of, you know, my training is technically, my PhD is technically granted by a computer science department. Economists assume I'm a psychologist when they meet me. Psychologists assume I'm an economist when they meet me. It's very confusing, but I've found that my most native habitat is the Society for Judgment and Decision-Making, and I would say like 80% of the work being done by folks that are still in the laboratory, but I don't have much taste for that. I do it occasionally but mostly I like to be in the field. And so another issue that guides project selection is can this be tested in a field experiment or in some field setting because that's my taste. So those are the kinds of questions I ask more than sort of an explore exploit. But I guess I would also say I have never had much taste for sort of writing the 700th paper on a topic that Mm -hmm. explores a new like a slightly different, oh, maybe it's a different mechanism. I'm more interested in the sort of like, could this be true first paper on a topic? And I think the returns tend to be higher there. Of course, we just talked about the social norms project. That was definitely a sort of 500th paper on social norms. So there's, but it was taking it into a really consequential field cons setting and trying to measure size so that's another thing I think if something hasn't been studied in a consequential context and it seems like there's big potential for it to have social impact if it worked there and you could measure the effect I have a taste for that too so those are sort of my two favorite kinds of work like big new question that might work and no one's asked it let's go there instead of the finding a subtle additional moderator and then taking something that seems very useful and measuring its policy relevance in an important context. But yeah. everyone, we need people with taste for all these kinds of work or else the science won't get done.
0: No, exactly. Uh, people with diverse uh, backgrounds and opinions and ways of doing research. So obviously also projects depend on partnerships. So I was wondering how you go about pitching ideas to potential partners. I mean, there is a solid balance to find between approaching partners with you know, confidence that the research idea is great, And then, you know, you also don't want to commit to delivering certain results, especially as you know that there there is a chance that they might not pan out. So how do you do that?
1: It's a great question. So I would say early in my career, it looked really different than it does now. And that's one of the things that has been a wonderful surprise is that with seniority and some success, it's become much easier to find research partners. I think at the beginning, I always would sort of, I, I had sort of like a template for a one page memo that I would write that basically said, here is some reason to believe my hypothesis is true. Here's the hypothesis I have about the world. Here's why and some evidence. And here's how I think it could be useful to prove this works in your business context and, and sort of like could improve profits or something, you know, something that's some, because mo- I, d- I would never expect an organization to partner altruistically there has to be something in it for them. So that was always the pitch. Like, here's why I think this is probably true, but I think you should test it. I can prove whether it is true. And here's the value you'll get if your organization finds what I think to be the case really is. And then I normally say, like, here's the data you'd need to extract. Here's how simple the project would be. I do all this work for free for you or at cost. And here's some smart people. When I was a doctoral student, i like, you know, list the fancy profiles of all the professors involved. And then I was like, and I'm here too. <laughs> So to try to impress with the the caliber of the team, and I found you know if I could find like an alumnus of a university I was affiliated with who was at the organization, and I called six organizations say in this space ten, I'd eventually maybe find someone willing to consider it. But there was a lot of pitching and a lot of failure early on, like a lot of no's, a lot more no's than yeses, and then. It's gotten easier because as I've become more senior and has established things, people like read about a news article about a study and say, oh, I want to use behavioral science in my organization. So more and more companies come to me and say, we are a gym chain. Could you do something? Because we saw you increased exercise over here. Or we are a um, healthcare provider, an insurer. And we noticed that you had success in this context. Could you help us too? That makes things so much easier when someone comes to you interested and willing. And I wish, and, and you know, one of the things we're trying to create with the behavior change for good initiative that Angela and I co-direct is um, make it easier for more researchers who maybe, you know, don't have people knocking at their door to get into the field by sharing the work, you know, the, work like we'll find a partner and we'll share that organizational partner with many scientists and say, let's all collaborate to build something, to test lots of ideas in this one setting. So the fixed costs of finding that partner are lowered. And I think, you know, we we didn't mean to, we don't want to be a monopoly. Like my hope is that there will be as, as interest in behavioral science research grows, we will see more and more organizations springing up at universities around the world that try to take on those fixed costs and spread the opportunities. To, now there are many research institutes that have experimental laboratories where they make it easier to like, you know, every professor who wants to run an experiment doesn't have to like go create their subject pool from scratch. They can go to a centrally organized pool of undergraduates who come in and complete surveys or community members who come in, do experiments and get paid to do that. I mean, my vision is that someday most universities are part of consortia that create those kinds of opportunities to do field work. That would be a dream come true, I think, for behavioral scientists. And it's ideal from the perspective of making this kind of research more impactful and more widely done. Yeah, that sounds very exciting.
0: Given what is at stake, I presume that you typically go through multiple stages of testing, including initial surveys, thinking about focus groups, maybe some small pilots. I was wondering whether you can tell us a little bit more about the process that you typically follow, if there is like a typical route that you take?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Is there a typical route? I think often, yes, we will like put together, we'll put together materials that we think would be study stimuli, like a mailing we want to send or a set of screenshots we want to show someone in an app to try to change behavior. And then we normally have a number of undergraduates look at it and give feedback on what's confusing. Often we'll run a pilot on MTurk or Prolific to ask people like, imagine that you received this piece of mail. Imagine that you saw these screens. What would you, you know, how would you react? What would you think? What would you do? And then hope that uh, they don't tell us like, I'm so confused, but if they do we go back, we, um, we normally uh, now involve designers in the process of creating the stimuli. So it's not just like me or a, and a doctoral student writing some words that we think makes sense, but someone who actually has expertise in using visuals to convey information, who helps us make it as, as few words as possible, <laughs> as visual as possible to convey ideas. And then often we'll run a small pilot before we run a larger scale study to make sure like the technology is working, that we're not getting tons of complaints or confusion. That's kind of the process, but it varies for every partner and some partners won't allow piloting for various or allow surveying of customers for various reasons. If we can survey customers, that's of course better, but mm-hmm. it's not always possible. And so sometimes we just launch things, and and then <laughs> something sometimes things go terribly wrong. So anyway, it's always different. But but those are some practices we try to use when possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is actually really interesting what you're saying about investing in designers. I think I, I completely agree with you that we should go more towards using more images and videos and thinking about how we can make content more engaging, uh, especially as we move maybe towards more online, say, uh, surveys where our attention is maybe harder to catch. So I think yeah. that sounds like a really uh, good way to, to proceed. You reserved the last chapter of your book for your most ambitious and still unfulfilled uh, mission, changing behavior for good. This is really, really hard, as we know. And we already spoke about your impressive mega-study that you just published in, in Nature on trying to encourage uh, exercise behavior, where you run all these uh, interventions, uh, 54, I think, with you know across uh, various teams, really looking at uh, the same outcomes. And you mentioned in the book, and I thought it was really interesting, that uh, you and uh, Angela Lukeworth seem to have had actually different views on, on the, the success of, of the study. So she might be maybe more inclined to consider it as a failure and you maybe more as a success. So I was wondering whether you could explain this and how, how should we think about it?
1: Well, one, I would say there we have different personalities and that is one of the things that makes working with Angela such a pleasure and so productive and, and always makes collaborations fun, right? You never want someone who is just a mirror image of you in every way. And I think Angela is more of a pessimist and I'm more of an optimist, so that partly explains... Differences in interpretation, uh, but in this particular case, we had set out with a clear goal. The goal was to create a set of programs that would last for four weeks and that would create durable behavior change beyond that point. And actually, on that goal, we very clearly failed. So almost none of the programs we devised produce significant lasting change. It's funny because, you know, I felt like it was such a failure, but actually in hindsight, when we analyze the data, the amount of durability we see is comparable to other studies of habit formation that have been done. They just were powered differently. So you could call that significant, but you know, we see 30% carryover which is roughly what you see in other studies. We just had to slip a smaller initial lift because we spent far less on incentives per person. So we got smaller behavior change on average. And then that 30% carryover is harder to detect with, with a smaller initial boost, but it was definitely not the case that we found some magic formula that created sort of a hundred percent durable change, which really was what we set out looking for. It's like, Let's go find the fountain of youth. And we didn't find it. So I think Angela was actually completely right in saying that our initial goal had failed. I just moved the goalpost. (laughs) So that's the optimist in me. I think I'm just, and I do this a lot and maybe you have to do it in academia to be satisfied. Because I'm satisfied when I learn things, even if they're not the things I set out to learn. And I have to be because that's how science works. Often you want to cure cancer. You want to, uh, you know, get everyone to quit smoking and you have to be satisfied when you learn something on the path to that goal. So we didn't find the fountain of youth. We didn't figure out how to create durable behavior change, that lasts forever and ever in some wildly new um, way. But we did find a bunch of things that did successfully change behavior while they were in place. So mm-hmm. we developed these four week programs, 45% of the ones we developed significantly changed behavior at very low cost while they were in place, the other 55% didn't significantly change behavior, but they were all directional. So, like, that was actually nice too. Like, nothing backfired. And actually, maybe that's not true. One directionally might have been like ever so slightly negative, but it was tiny, you know, like really, really tiny. Basically, everything was positive. So, that was kind of to me, I was like, well, that's cool. We learned something. Um, we learned something quite useful. And that's why I felt like there was success. We learned a lot. And another thing I think I learned by doing it and that I write about in the book is I think we were looking, I think we might've been barking up the wrong tree by hoping we could do something short-term that would last forever. And that a better way to try to approach the science of durable behavior change is with durable interventions because there's such a reliable drop. Yeah, you get some carryover and there's some habit formation. And that's exciting that, you know, 30% carryover is a lot better than 0% or even crowd out, which a lot of people get anxious about when you run an incentive program. Isn't it going to crowd out intrinsic motivation? When you take the incentive away, it'll be worse than before. And I actually do have one study That looked like that in hospital caregivers, where we basically are monitoring whether or not they're using hand sanitizer. And when you take away the monitoring completely, it's actually leads to worse behavior than before. So it can happen, but I think that's anyway, when you leave something in place, you generally, I, I think don't get huge declines in efficacy in the behavioral science literature. You get pretty stable results. And that when we can come up with these low cost behaviorally based interventions to me, that is a discovery worth celebrating. So I think the study taught me lots of things about things that worked for four weeks to create change. So that was a win. I learned lots of things. Also opened my mind to a new way of thinking about durable change. Instead of hoping for this magical solution that would create durable change with a temporary intervention, I think we should be looking more for durable interventions. So that's why it felt like a win. I learned a lot. And I think is also right that the goal we set out to achieve We failed to achieve so different perspectives but in the end you know if you asked her would she agree with everything i just said and how that was a win she absolutely would (laughs) and of course if you ask me do i agree with her perspective that we didn't achieve the original goal i absolutely do so it's just you know so is a glass half full or half empty
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, no No, i think this is really important what you're saying which is i learned something so very often i mean there are some studies you know the design was actually not clean enough for us to actually be able to learn something So I think there is something about kind of distinguishing kind of the outcomes, looking beyond outcomes. Okay, so at the end of the day, every project is a lottery and we don't control the outcome, but we can control the design, we can control the process. And as long as you're able to learn, and actually, I think this is tremendously successful research, because for maybe one of the very first times, we can see a distribution of failures and successes in a very systematic way, Why very often we only see successes, and then we fall prey to the what, what you see is all there is, and that's dangerous. So I actually think that this has a lot of potential. And I also like the idea of the mega studies allowing for a mutualization of risks. So if you think about this, I, I tend to think about this as an insurance mechanism, right? So now we can go and test out maybe, you know, long shots that have a small probability of success, but maybe a significant upside. And I'm also incredibly important. So thinking about the trajectory, not just the paper that you're, you know, you produce, but also even the concept seems like a, a very important Uh, part of the of
1: the work. Absolutely. I I totally agree with that. And one of the things that's funny is, you know, we set out with this goal, as I mentioned, Angela and I both defined like we're going to find the keys to durable change. And what we ended up writing a paper about was a new methodology for doing behavioral science. And that was actually, I think, the biggest contribution, not the oh, 45% created temporary, not what I focused on in telling in terms of telling you what I felt was a success about our specific goals. But the most useful thing, and this is what the nature paper is about, is Here's a way of doing science at scale or doing behavioral science at scale, I should say, that allows us to take more risks, that has all these benefits. And that we got to that because we had the ambition of supercharging the science of durable behavior change. And to do that, we were like, well, why don't we run a bunch of studies all at one time? And that'll accelerate discovery. Again, we had some different goal in mind, and then we stumbled upon a methodology that in in the end is the, I think, most exciting part of the product. And and that's really what the paper is about. It's sort of like a demonstration of a methodology. And then we've used the methodology since. It's weird because papers get published in funny order, but a publication that predates this, even though the work was done long, long after, and actually the paper was submitted long after this one was submitted. But again, publication timelines are weird. We ended up using this methodology to test different strategies for encouraging vaccination, which was a really pressing policy problem, obviously continues to be. And because we had developed this mega study method, I think we were able to do something much more impactful than I would have ever thought to do before when facing the challenge of vaccine hesitancy. Because by, we tested you know dozens of ideas instead of a couple of our favorites. And of course, what rose to the top was not what we expected it to be. And that was very useful and has been rolled out and deployed widely. So I think the mega study method did end up being the big winner that came out of this.
0: Work. Yeah, I, I presume that this mega study has not only increased your motivation to find answers to the problem of how we can sustain behavior change. So I want to ask what's next? What are you thinking about, you know, trying to do to maybe keep this momentum, right, that we, we need for, for long term change? Do you think that the solution, we have to come from a, a careful combination of positive reinforcement of good routines with maybe the introduction of a, a little bit of variation, new stimuli to keep people engaged?
1: Yes to everything you said, but what I'm most bullish on is um, making interventions more social, making them more embedded in our day-to-day lives by hooking them to our community and the people we spend our time with and trying to, if you sort of look at all of the things in the world that really in the wild, not, not the things scientists study, but just the things that people flock to that really do change their lives in a massive, meaningful way. You, you see things like organized religion or Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't see things like text messages and apps changing lives. And I think one of the common denominators in the things that are happening in the world that are, that are completely changing people's paths are organized groups, people, communities that support one another towards their goals. So I am very excited about doing work that looks more like that, where we try to form lasting social connections between people towards the end of achieving more goals. And um, Angela and I are sort of cooking up some work in in an area that we are both very excited about, which is trying to reduce college dropout that would look more social in nature and less like an app and more like communities of small groups that you form with that support you and create hopefully durable change through that mechanism, as opposed to a a set of text messages or micro incentives. Maybe those are part of what happens, but that the chief way we try to create change is through community. You no, know, that
0: I, I, I completely uh, uh, buy this. I think this is really important that we investigate this more. The last thing I would like to ask you maybe, so we, we've spoken about future Katie and what she wants to do. I would like to ask about past Katie. Looking back, what do you wish past Katie had known, you know, 10, 15 years ago about, you know, how to do behavioral science, what obstacles to avoid? If you had a single piece of advice, maybe that you want to share with the next generation of behavioral scientists, what would it be?
1: I think my single piece of advice would be, find collaborators who you are excited to talk to about ideas and ideas you're excited to think about. Both of those things are important. You can't just love your collaborators and you can't just love the ideas. You need to love both. And I I think we don't probably put enough weight on the, the need for like that itch, the like deep curiosity to know the answer to the question. And we also don't place enough need on the deep bonds with the people we're working with, the joy we get from spending time with them. Those two things, I think, create the very best outcomes in science because you need, you need to love the conversation that leads you to the hypothesis and to the understanding. You need to love that process and you need to be deeply curious about the question you set out to answer or else four years into reviewing or revising the paper for the 700th time. You'll hate it. So I think those things should be a higher priority for most of us than they are in choosing what we work on.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with this. Thanks a lot for this awesome conversation. I learned a lot uh, and I hope you will inspire a lot of the next behavioral scientists to actually uh, explore some of the ideas that we covered. Thank you for
1: uh, asking. asking such great questions. This was really fun. I learned a lot too. And thanks for the wonderful work you do.